welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about infertility treatment for U.S. military and their partners. This is an important topic not only for people in the military, but I really think for all of us it's important. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this show, and here's a sample of what you're going to hear. Once a IVF patient puts down their uh, military ID, uh, a variety of discounts become uh, within reach for, for that patient. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Our friends at Faring have recently launched an all-new resource called My Fertility Navigator. It is a unique, personalized service for people who are struggling to get pregnant and unsure of where to start on their fertility journey. Once enrolled, women are matched with a dedicated live fertility navigator who can offer one-on-one support based on their individual needs. So that is a new program, and we are really proud here to announce it at Creating a Family. uh, Faring has been an underwriter of our show for many years, uh, and we are always uh, happy to announce new developments that they have coming down the pike. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Cellmatics. They are the next generation's women's health company transforming how women approach their fertility journey through genomics and big data. Their product, or the product that we talk about the most, is Fertilome. And Fertilome is the world's first uh, comprehensive genetic test that reveals what a woman's DNA says about her reproductive health. We also have Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. And we have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. With 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey, they maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. And in addition to our gold sponsors, those as well as some we'll mention later in the show, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page or on our site. Uh, We analyze them by location, services provided, years in operation. You can search by all those criteria. Um, And when using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about infertility treatment and the military. Our guest is Dr. Scott Sills. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director at the Center for Advanced Genetics in Carlsbad, California, and author of Fighting at the Fertility Front, a Navigational Guide to Infertility for U.S. Military, Veterans, and Their Partners. Welcome, Dr. Sills, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having me. Well, we'll start. I think everybody who's going to be listening to this probably knows that insurance, the, in, the insurance applicable to active military is, is TRICARE. Uh, and uh, TRICARE specifically states that they will cover uh, – well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. 
So we know TRICARE covers uh, active military. What are veterans eligible for TRICARE? Are veterans eligible? What what type of insurance or what type of medical uh, insurance care are veterans eligible for? Well, veterans uh, do come under a different uh, rubric compared to active duty military, uh, and the timing of the of the show here is is great because both uh, active duty and uh, previously serving uh, service members are experiencing a flux in their coverage with respect to reproductive treatments right now. So I would encourage listeners to log on to their TRICARE website and uh, keep uh, aware of the changes that are happening at the congressional level. There's been keen interest in broadening access. Uh, We'll talk first about active duty, uh, but there's been keen interest in broadening the access to uh, advanced (laughs) fertility care, um, luckily. And appropriately. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, the, the Veterans Administration, of course, is in charge of providing uh, supportive medical care for those who are not in active duty, and that's an entirely different administrative uh, section of our federal government. But um, that also is an area where there have been some changes, uh, fortunately, for our folks who've already served and have returned home. Um, but okay. this is yeah, but a, some of these, uh, some of these it's, it's a very, very complex recent. area. It, it, just as it is in civilian medicine, insurance inter- interjects a very uh, complex layer of uh, bureaucratic policies that are not static. And so uh, anybody who has an employee benefit with a private company that's outside of the military knows that they get an HR packet in the mail every so often because mm-hmm. their insurance mm-hmm. coverage has been reconfigured or maybe their uh, company policies have changed. Um, and it's a lot of fine print, and very, very few people take the time to read the uh, microscopic print on uh, those policies. But when it comes to trying to help people have a baby and grow their family, uh, most clinics will have someone who's dedicated to just uh, wrestling with insurance companies on behalf of our patients, and those are the folks that know the most in real time about how those policies modify over time. Absolutely, and that's very yeah, and and almost. And we talk about that. We do a lot of um, insurance coverage issues. Uh, we cover that a lot, both on our website and on this show. And that's one of the things we always mention. It's not every clinic, but many clinics uh, will have somebody on staff who is quite knowledgeable. Um, about insurance can help walk you through because it is it is complex uh, and it's quite frankly confusing. Um, now we're going to be talking later about the differences between or the difference between fertility services available at military treatment facilities and fertility services covered by Tricare. But I'm going to start by talking about what uh, what's covered by Tricare. And um, so, which is the military insurance for active personnel. And, uh, and, and you're right, there's been some, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but there's been some recent, I mean, very recent developments in um, what's uh, available through the Veterans Administration, so uh, as it relates. All right, so let's talk, let's start by talking about what military insurance, how, how it treats infertility treatment. And let's make a distinction up front between infertility caused by an uh, injury uh, on active duty versus uh, infertility that's, uh, uh, that is not caused by, and we're going to talk right. more, much more about active duty in just a minute. So for uh, military families who are experiencing infertility, um, but 
have, but it's not an injury caused either. They don't know the reason, or it's certainly they don't have any reason to believe that it's caused by act, by something that happened while they were in the military. What is covered? The basic benefit package for Tricare, as originally configured, was limited to um, in, intrauterine insemination, and the IVF component was specifically excluded from uh, coverage. Fortunately, most um, military health providers will guide uh, their patients on base to the uh, designated centers of excellence for uh, fertility care within the uh, military system. Uh, currently, I think there are four uh, centers uh, all over I think the country. Six. That I believe there's six now. There may be. There, it's yeah, a, compared there to the number of regions, it's. I think it's probably not matching the demand. But uh, no, there are a limited be. number. There, there's a limited number of uh, IVF units of varying uh, busyness levels, um, where uh, thoughtful personnel at our military hospitals can uh, direct uh, active duty uh, service members and their partners to. Uh, those places. The difficulty is that uh, the wait lists, uh, once right. the person in, in contacts those uh, facilities that do provide IVF under the remit of uh, TRICARE, uh, they have a couple of uh, challenges waiting for them. One is they have to confirm that the uh, treatment that they seek actually is going to be uh, considered eligible for coverage by TRICARE. And again, um, this is an evolving uh, issue. Um, depending on how aggressive the uh, administrative staff are to go to bat for the patients and to articulate an effective advocacy program to get their treatment covered, uh, it, it may or may not be considered eligible. And you make a very good distinction about service-connected injury versus non-service-connected infertility yeah. etiologies. Here again, we'll swing, it's... Yeah, it's, we'll swing back to that in just a minute. Um, I checked this morning, and what... Because, uh, as you point out, it's, it is a fluctuating um, uh, field. Right now, for um, active military, where the infertility is not covered from an injury on active duty, um, diagnostic services are covered to identify physical illnesses or injuries, uh, both for men and women. Um, the uh, infertility corrective treatments and surgeries for women are also covered. Uh, let's see, therapies such as hormonal therapies, corrective surgeries, antibiotics, uh, things such as that uh, could be covered. Um, let's see, it does cover erectile dysfunction due to organic, uh, psychological, or psychiatric causes. TRICARE does not cover intrauterine insemination. It does not cover uh, donor or semen banks. It does not cover reversal of tubal uh, ligation or vasectomy. Uh, let's see. It doesn't. Uh, let's see. It does not cover care for erectile dysfunction from psychological causes of depression, anxiety, or stress. Let's see. I'm looking out. It does not cover IVF. Anything that I'm missing there from what Tricare covers or doesn't cover? Well, I would defer to your real time viewing of their page. I think that's a very good thing for the listeners to know about uh, because uh, that's exactly right. Those are the kinds of things that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that the diagnostic co component is covered, but of course, 
once you find out what the problem is, uh, by way of those uh, assessments, now the patient has to look across the desk and see this expert and say, well, now what can we do about it? And right. all those things that you mentioned are arrows not in the quiver now because they've specifically enumerated those as off the grid. So if, even if a patient needs IUI, then uh, so I would have to modify my comment earlier. I was under the impression most of our patients from Camp Pendleton, when they come here, off into the civilian uh, territory have had inseminations provided uh, there, but they, they failed and they come here for a, a different type of treatment, mainly looking for IVF. Um, so I think there's a lot of variance from maybe the smaller bases compared to the larger bases. And because of the staffs that are there, they can go and, and file an appeal if the, if the claim is denied. Um, and, you, and as we all know, there's an entire industry that's de been developed on how to file for insurance claims and how to chase down the denials and how to write appeal letters to the medical directors. And it's sad because people like me who want to be in the front line to help patients, uh, increasing amounts of my time have to be uh, invested in composing letters to people who are not reproductive endocrinologists and try to persuade them to cover Sally mm -hmm. Smith's in vitro fertilization uh, wow. And that takes me away from doing surgery or egg retrievals or embryo transfers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, 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 it can be very frustrating both for patients and for providers. Oh, I, absolutely. And I, we should point out that this is not uh, exclusive to TRICARE and, and military insurance. Many people outside of the military face exactly. I mean, there's only yes. a limited number of states that require that insurance carriers who sell insurance in their state provide coverage. Um, I will say, just as, a, as an aside, this I don't know that this would be helpful with uh, the military, but um, just as a reminder to people who are listening, um, it, most employers who provide insurance coverage for infertility treatment do so because they have been, it's been requested uh, by their employees. Uh, so if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So it's something to think about. Again, this is not direct, directly uh, relevant to um, what we're talking about here. All right, so recently there has been a change, um, and that is for uh, uh, military personnel who have been injured on active duty and their infertility is is caused by that. So uh, let's talk a little about that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, do you know exactly when that change uh, happened? That could be easily obtained from Federal Register publications, um, it may be phased in gradually. As, as you know, this kinds of, these, these kinds of changes happen when there are a number of high-profile cases that become generally known, and people start calling their congressmen and their senators, and really out of a state of duty and obligation, uh, it becomes known, wow, we're not covering IUI, we're not covering IVF for people who have, have put their life on the line to defend our nation's security. How can that be? How can this omission stand? Uh, and so it's really a more of a reaction. It kind of goes back to the point you made earlier before. If you don't ask for things, then the answer by default is always no. And uh, as people write letters to their uh, elected uh, legislators or Congress members, um, then it becomes uh, a point almost of a, a national embarrassment that this is something that, uh, that we're not providing. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that uh, that even uh, the HHS uh, leadership knows exactly when this is going to be affected as a blanket policy to affect, uh, to help and to assist uh, all active duty personnel and their families. But 
Uh, and then we have to talk again about the, the Veterans Administration. Uh, it wouldn't be right to not offer it for them as well. So it has to be coordinated in a way that everybody can understand. And it's still in certainly a state of, of motion. Um, but if a, if a person believes that they are entitled to this uh, coverage going to their uh, military health provider and uh, saying, giving them a reason for uh, why they need this treatment, after all the diagnostic workup is completed, then I think uh, it has to be seen on a case-by-case basis. And the uh, the serious it has to be a serious injury or illness uh, that occurred when you were on active duty, a category two or three injury or illness that caused you to lose natural reproductive ability, uh, your natural reproductive ability. Um, so those are the uh, the requirements um, for uh, whether or not and, and what is covered is sperm retrieval, egg retrieval, in vitro, artificial insemination, um, uh, transfer uh, of, uh, of embryo, embryo transfer, uh, and cryopreservation and storage of embryos. What isn't included is surrogacy. So depending on what the injury is, um, that is not included. included. Right. Uh, and as I understand it, fertility preservation is not included. So that's a, um, that has been a shift and uh yes. and an important one because i think as you pointed out the the public outcry was uh particularly these horrible injuries that were happening through um ieds and that would uh, uh significantly damage beyond repair the reproductive organs and um uh, when that became when people became more aware of that they started they were outraged uh as well they should be well, I think that what's happened also is that the resistance to, in, in principle, uh, to the advanced fertility uh, technologies has has shifted, um, and the uh, awareness of what how high the success rates are in in the modern era, uh, the costs are still high, uh, but the success rates are are getting better every year. Um, but the, the the pushback on defining whether or not the uh, Injury uh, or the the affliction was uh, really service connected. Has also fortunately undergone some uh, welcome change because no uh, active duty service member has a semen analysis performed on them at intake when they are in basic training. We don't know if they were sterile before they even enlisted. Um, that's not part of the routine health assessment for any branch of the U.S. military. Uh, so if you fast forward now, after their uh, term of service is concluded and they've returned from overseas deployment even, if they have an abnormal semen analysis, there was a time not many years ago when uh, military medical leadership would say, you can't prove that your exposure to toxins or any uh, environmental element during your uh, tour of duty, you can't prove that that is the reason that you're currently subfertile, therefore claim denied. Uh, it's a very curious circle that we get into here now because all we know is that downstream there could be a problem or that there maybe has been defined yeah. a problem in sperm motility or sperm concentration, but because there was no assessment of that before uh, the person joined uh, the military, uh, it's very easy. It was very easy for uh, any claim for uh, health coverage to be denied on that basis. 
Um, other countries, uh, the only one I can think of off the top of my head now is Israel, allows uh, sperm banking uh, at the time of uh, entry into their uh, defense forces as a actually a very low cost but uh, very humanitarian and very uh, forward-thinking uh, intervention uh, because in the event of an IED or uh, some kind of a blast or some other traumatic injury that uh, causes irreparable harm that makes natural reproduction impossible, they can always go back to that government military uh, deposit of, uh, of reproductive cells that will allow that member of the Israeli Defense Forces to have an insemination or possibly even IVF. Every country is different, and I'm not saying that that's something that should occur for all service uh, members, but the fact that it isn't even being discussed is a little sad because that would, I think, be a way to invest in our, uh, in our people uh, to keep every door open for their future reproductive careers. Um, and it would also actually provide us with important data on what their uh, semen parameters were before deployment. Right now we don't know any of that. And I, I suspect, it, well, my question to you is until I, I read your book, Fighting at the Fertility Front, A Navigational Guide to Infertility for U.S. Military Veterans and Their Partners, I really had not given a great deal of thought to the increased risk for fertility issues for military personnel. So let's talk about some of the, the risks that, that people in the military face. One that we've both mentioned is traumatic genital injury, and I think in particular we think of it in terms of IEDs. Um, I'm sure it can happen in other ways, um, but uh, um, there are some things that have been done that I, I don't know. I have not been able to find research that says that it has been lessened, but uh, uh, specialized undergarments that protect the genital area um, from from bullets right. and from explosions. Have you seen uh, or heard, have that is that beginning to reduce the uh, the type of genital injury that that uh, we oh, had been seeing? Absolutely, yes. And and and, and to the credit of the Defense Department, uh, they did uh, provide that uh, basically shielding for, uh, for the exact purpose that you were mentioning. And the book does talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. And even since the time of uh, the book's uh, publication a few years ago, this has been something where uh, our it's been extremely, uh, I think, uh, for it's been extremely useful for our uh, fighting folks to have access to those kinds of protections in much the same way that we would want them to have the best equipment for weaponry and artillery right. and fighting jets. I mean, this is a basic uh, element of personal protection. Um, and what you've mentioned is really right on the money because it's those undergarments are not are not. Uh, very costly, but uh, they certainly can provide a priceless benefit for the folks that use them. And just since 2015, uh, those have actually been uh, become made with greater availability for our, our military personnel. Excellent. What about um, we we hear a lot about um, uh, things that happened in the Gulf War uh, that have had long-lasting health impact on the soldiers and the veterans after they've come home. Have there been some impacts that we know of from uh, chemicals or whatever that was used during the Gulf War specifically that we know impact fertility? There have been a number of publications uh, released by uh, military 
medicine experts looking at uh, depleted uranium exposure, um, chromium exposure. There's a uh, big uh, interest in open burn pits uh, where uh, smoke could be potentially inhaled over long periods of time, weeks, uh, by uh, service members that are stationed in close proximity to essentially unregulated incinerators where mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the toxic uh, uh, compounds are becoming a part of the human body because of their close, uh, di- close distance to them. Um, yes, and all, all of the, the concern, really, it stems back to a previous uh, conflict in uh, another generation where uh, military uh, personnel in Vietnam were exposed to Agent Orange, which at the time mm-hmm. was regarded as relatively safe. Right. Uh, now, with the disclosures uh, that have become uh, uh, part of public policy, we can go back and see of all the women and men that were affected mm-hmm. by that toxic compound. So it, I'm, I'm sad to say that it may be many years before you really have a way to put a caliper on the true reproductive consequences of some of the environmental elements that our military personnel have been exposed to during the Gulf War uh, deployments. Well, even subsequent uh, wars. I mean, uh, Afghan and Iraq. I mean, I think that we can. Oh, yes. um, we don't read as much. I don't know about it, but that's probably because we don't have as much information about it, um, and the people are, are still relatively new. It's, 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 it's a tight balance to, to negotiate because, on the one hand, uh, obviously we need to respect uh, a level of secrecy for what happens during uh, military engagements. Uh, I certainly recognize that. But when it comes to the fundamental safety of our, our fighting folks, then I think there needs to be some mechanism that uh, puts their – uh, health and safety at the forefront, and you know there is no OSHA that protects them like we would see in a factory yeah. in the civilian world. So, the the it's a, it's a job like no other, and that's why there's a lot of material in the book dedicated to special kinds of in, environmental uh, exposures that regular civilian working people would never be exposed to mm-hmm. uh, for safety concerns. And those are the kinds of things that, uh, regrettably, each of the chapters that, that uh, addresses things like just exposure to microwaves and, and radar and um, the pressure extremes for our folks that are in submarines and our jet pilots that are at very high altitudes for long periods of time. Um, I mentioned these heavy metals like chromium and mm-hmm. uh, cadmium and uranium. Uh, there are very, very few individuals uh, outside of the military universe that would ever be exposed to those kinds of uh, toxins. And there's an extensive literature on how those toxins can adversely affect egg quality and sperm quality and how that will have a dampening effect on uh, fertility, not just in terms of not being able to conceive, but the miscarriage rates and birth defect rates are also concerning. So those are... um, you know, whenever the, uh, whenever my uh, associate uh, Regina Rockefeller composed her forward for the book, in a very concise way. I mean, she's a very gifted attorney, and she talked about how when people sign up to to join the military, they're not doing so with the thought that they may be waiving their right to have a baby in the future. That's mm-hmm. that's not really part of the deal. But unfortunately, until we gather more data on what kinds of substances. 
our military personnel are exposed to during de- uh, enlistment periods that can last for years and deployments that could put them not just in harm's way from the enemy, but environmentally in a harmful uh, context. We don't really know uh, what what part of that uh, deal is in terms of their uh, putting the uniform on. And, and as we talked about before the show, even the uniform itself may have reproductive implications if it is coated with a with a uh, toxin itself. Well, let's talk a little about that, uh, the permethrin, um, which is a, right. uh, a bug repellent. Um, the military uniforms, there are some military uniforms that are uh, permeated with that in order to prevent bug bites and, and, and you know, and the right. diseases and stuff that could be trans- transmitted that way. So what is some of the, uh, uh, and you point out, that um, uh, permethrin is quite effective, but it was not intended to be a, a constant exposure. Uh, and right. so what do we know about the risks of permethrin? Well, actually very little in terms of long-term uh, direct skin contact with this substance. Um, the best example I give to my patients, that mainly they're coming from Camp Pendleton, which is a very large uh, Marine Corps base that's my neighbor here in Carlsbad. Uh, mm-hmm. The best example I give for those couples that come here um, is to use the familiar uh, uh, story of the lice shampoo that people can sometimes have to use if, like, they have a child that's in an elementary school or middle school mm-hmm. and they get a notice from the teachers saying we need everybody to go and use this uh, shampoo and it sends all the parents scurrying out to their local pharmacy to go buy this special shampoo that is uh, going to kill lice eggs and uh, mature lice organisms and if you read the fine print on the bottle of the lice eradicating shampoo permethrin is the active ingredient of that substance for most of the shampoos that are available over the counter. But if you read the little black box warning, it specifically says, don't use this every day. This is not supposed to be regarded as your head and shoulders shampoo that you just keep in the shower for constant use. It's a special event. It's done that, it's, it's labeled that way because of the points that you were alluding to earlier. We don't know what happens if you continue to use this day after day after day. It's it's not. It was never designed to be used that way. So imagine uh, what would happen to a person if they disregarded that and they decided to make their standard uh, hair care product something that had permethrin in it, as if they had lice every day of the year. And um, I mean, I think that would be a, a every foolish choice. Yeah. Every parent's nightmare. You would be worried. Yeah. I want to try to limit my kids' exposure to this stuff, and as soon as I get the all clear from the school administration, we're going to go back to the regular shampoo. Now, the the uniforms are coated with that substance. It's it's uh, imbricated into the uh, fabric, so it's a part of the cloth of uh, almost all uh, uniforms, active duty uniforms. Now, there are exceptions. If a person is pregnant, uh, they can go get a letter and have a uh, permethrin-free uniform issued to them. And the book talks about how those letters should be uh, worded and and who to send them to. Um, I don't know that there's a uh, mechanism to allow males to avoid use. uh, I was going to ask about that. What about women, uh, partners, spouses, female spouses? 
of, of male military personnel who are uh, dealing with uh, both the uniforms themselves as well as right. uh, the skin of their husbands who has been in, in contact with permethrin. I know, and that's a great question because this is sort of analogous to what used to be worried with secondhand exposure among uh, coal miners uh, many, uh-huh. many years ago. And uh, you would have uniforms uh, covered with substances, whether it's asbestos or silicon or all the things that are going to be part and parcel of uh, coal miners, the cut and thrust of their daily work puts them in contact with substances that their above-ground family members would not normally be exposed to. Uh, and also secondhand smoke from smokers is another example of that. But we just don't have any data uh, on what happens with partners who are not military members, but they're they're cohabitating with someone who has permethrin-coated uniforms hanging in the closet with their other clothes, mm-hmm. or they're wearing it all right. the time. And you mentioned skin-to-skin contact. It's another variable mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. really, it's a very under, underdeveloped area of study. And until mm-hmm. the military decides to invest some resources in acquiring data on it, we're still not going to know much about it because there is no other field of human endeavor that makes their people wear a uniform that has permethrin embedded into the fabric itself, woven mm-hmm. into the actual uh, material outside of our, our military. Um, so we know that in animal studies it's been implicated as a uh, potentially very serious reproductive toxin, and, and the book goes into the literature that's been available in uh that's, that's published in medical journals that, that addresses that point. Um, but it's, uh, it's an open question. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to see that this is not something that is um, generally known among um, our military personnel. They, there are some posters that are available, whether or not they're in, in easy public access and highly visible, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've, I've not been around that part of the, the military hospital setting enough to see them, but uh, you can see those posters uh, mm-hmm. on the internet. Uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. so the, the, the fact that they're, that our military uh, administration recognizes that this is something that should be communicated to our uh, service members by putting it up on a, uh, a public information poster is, mm-hmm. is great. But now the second stage is well. How do we quantify the effect of it for the folks that are still exposed? We don't. We don't have mm-hmm. enough information to know. Right, and and then ultimately, you know how that would all fit into if that's an injury that you receive on active duty. I mean that's that's a, that's going to be a stretch. Um, let me right. stop for a moment and say you are listening to Creating a Family. We are today talking about infertility treatment for military personnel. Uh, I wanted to let you know that Creating a Family has one of, if not the largest, online network in the area of infertility. Clout, now Clout, the independent online influence ranker, n- ranker now ranks, ranks Creating a Family as the, I think last time I checked, we were the number two worldwide influencer in the area of fertility. Uh, we would love to have you join us on our social networks. It would be all the better, the, the more the merrier. We primarily hang out at Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can connect with me personally, dawn.davenport1. 
or you can connect with uh, Creating a Family itself. We have a page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily. And we also have a group, and the the group you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. Or the very easiest way is just to type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and you can like the page and join the group. It is a private group, not a private, it's called a closed group. And so uh, you will have to request to join. We uh, once a week let people in. On Twitter and Pinterest, we are known as at creating a family, so you can just pop that in there and and uh, and follow us on those places as well. Uh, Dr. Sills, I was glad that you mentioned because I found it fascinating reading in your uh, book, uh, Fighting at the Fertility Front, uh, about the impact of radar and pressure. Uh, and pressure primarily, the ones that you mentioned were high altitude and uh, and submarine uh, pressures. Tell us a bit. Let's let's start with radar. How are people exposed, and 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 is radar detrimental to male or female fertility? Well, that is, uh, you're getting into a very narrow band of uh, <laughs> academic research. Um, there, and there really hasn't, a great opportunity came uh, in the early 2000s and the mid-2000s to look at that issue about radar exposure. I mean, think about radar as a type of energy. Um, and when the human body is exposed to high levels of any type of energy, there's a chance that cells that are sensitive to uh electromagnetic energy could behave differently than if they're in a natural setting. Um, I believe there was a great uh, uh, paper that came out in about 2007 that looked at specifically the uh, uh, role that radar exposure had on sperm quality on naval personnel. Uh, It came from a Chinese investigational group, and they looked at about 300 men uh, and they divided them into f- different groups depending on how long they were exposed to radar. And um, that study also included uh, around 100 people who had been exposed to military radar for like two years. But then they got reassigned and had it no radar exposure for six months before the study. Um, and And this is the point I think that you were alluding to, the sperm count, the sperm motion, and the percentage of normal forms of sperm were much lower after radar exposure in those Chinese military uh, personnel. Um, and, the, and the number of abnormally shaped sperm, so defectively made sperm, was much higher after radar operators uh, were compared to normal healthy uh, males that did not have that exposure. Um, but fortunately, uh, the this paper from 2007 from the Chinese uh, military showed that for men who switched from uh, long-term radar exposure into a job that didn't have any radar exposure in as little as six months there could have been there was substantial improvement in mm-hmm. sperm morphology and motility um, so uh, I'm, 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 I'm sad to say that we don't really have a lot of US data on this but the Chinese authors found that while military radar uh, exposure looked like it was very harmful to human sperm it was still possible to uh, recover uh, good or more fertile sperm if the radar exposure is stopped or avoided for some time. Um, that begs the so question, think, however, of for, for women, uh, because men, right, the, right. Uh, the, the, the sperm turnover is uh, so much more, well, not more rapid. For women, there is none. But uh, for men, um, the sperm are created, what, about every three months? 
you kind of get exactly. a, um, a shift in the uh, in the population, mm-hmm. but with women. Um, and I realize, as far as I know, there has been no research done for women who That's are exposed right. to radar. It's but, a much uh, more it's a much more difficult uh, scientific question to gather data on for the reasons that you just uh, mentioned. Because uh, you're for females, they're they're born with a certain finite number of uh, right. eggs that are not regenerated, and so that uh, I'm. I'm I'm tempted to speculate that uh, for female uh, military members who were exposed to radar, they could be reassigned to a desk job, but sadly their uh, injury may be permanent. And the other was pressure, and that's someone I honestly had not given much thought to, um, the pressure differential at depth um, as well as at height. Um, so, again, not a tremendous amount of research, um, but uh, from what we know, there is an impact of fertility, and um, do we know if it, in fact, it impacts women and men equally? Well, again, there at the time my book was published in uh, 2015, there were only nine papers that focused on the issue of the reproductive expe- uh, exposure, the reproductive effects of uh, high-pressure uh, extremes. Um, and there was a 2010 paper, uh, McGann and colleagues found that uh, in, the, in the civilian world that there was a risk of miscarriage was increased uh, for flight attendants uh, compared mm-hmm. to healthy women who did not fly. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the likelihood of preterm birth was greater in aircraft passengers, but the risk of preeclampsia, neonatal ICU admissions uh, was not increased for women who were exposed to high-altitude uh, air travel. But it was a very hard study to carry out. The, the statistical analysis had, its, had some serious limitations, and the authors recognized that, and they, and they mm-hmm. admitted that the challenges of studying the risks of spontaneous miscarriage and other bad pregnancy outcomes were, were, were many in, in this kind of special population. Right, it's, but, it's yeah. It's but the take-home message seemed to be that there was a greater risk of miscarriage or stillbirth for uh, women who were uh, continuously or near continuously exposed to uh, pressure extremes. Uh, it's helpful. To, it's helpful to know, but it's just not known if military personnel uh, would be uh, would, how they would be classified in those kinds of occupational groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's even less data on the effect of sperm. Hmm. That's interesting. You would think that there. Well, hmm, yeah. Either way, that is a possibility, and it's something to be aware of that can impact, yes. or potentially might impact. Actually, but as you point out, we we simply don't know. And one thing that I I was thankful that I saw in your book was some of the more routine things that can impact fertility. That's important for us to be aware of. Stress. I mean, the service in the military is highly stressful. Uh, sleep deprivation. Um, sleep deprivation is very common uh, in in active personnel. And both, we know that stress and sleep are very important, or the lack of sleep, are very important for fertility for everyone, not just for military uh, personnel. We've been publishing uh, some articles here at Creating a Family talking about uh, sleep in particular. There's some fascinating research for both male and female fertility about the importance of sleep. Uh, and uh, so that the good news is that uh, for both of of those, and uh, again, especially for men, but there is, uh, as long as it's not overly prolonged, there's 
uh, good evidence that says that that once you remove yourself from the highly stressful, sleep-deprived environment, that your fertility will uh, will come back. Although I suppose, depending on the extreme, it might not. And depending on the agent. And as I mentioned uh, some moments ago, some of these agents are classified. So we won't know for many years what exactly the service personnel were exposed to at the chemical oh, level. Yeah, uh, on the chemicals, right. I was just speaking more of distress and sleep deprivation, but you're exactly right that as far as the exposures, both the, the environmental toxins as well as right. the exposures to injuries, yeah, it's, um, it's huge, and, and we just don't know. All right, let me t- stop for a moment and uh, remind folks that uh, I wanted to mention a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you uh, that it is through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show. We have Georgia Reproductive Specialists. Their goal is to provide you with the latest women's healthcare innovations to address infertility, polycystic ovaries, endometriosis, and pelvic pain. They have three locations in the Atlanta area, uh, and uh, they would love to see you. And we also have IntegraMed Fertility. They are the largest network of fertility practices in the country. They combine the latest innovations in the reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans. All right, now let's shift talking about infertility treatment that is available in military medical facilities. Uh, there, as we mentioned at the beginning, there are six now that perform varying degrees of infertility treatment, but the six that, that are, are particularly listed um, are, are, are tout that they cover the full range of infertility treatment. Your point yes. is well taken that military personnel are throughout the United States, so uh, you may not live within an within, uh, easy commute of one of these facilities. My question is, um, assuming you can go to the facility, you mentioned something that was very important up front, and that is we hear from um, our audience uh, the complaint frequently of waiting lists, so there is something to be aware of. Um, Is the cost less for, let's let's talk IVF right now, is the cost less for IVF if a patient is able to use one of the military treatment facilities? Absolutely, and that is a very compelling positive factor, uh, much to the credit of our system, uh, that the out-of-pocket costs would be substantially lower in the remit of the military IVF context. Um, I had, just in the past uh, six to ten months, uh, a patient from uh, Camp Pendleton who uh, was fortunate enough to be able to go to uh, and get her name on a uh, IVF uh, wait list at one of the uh, subsidized programs through the uh, military, uh, and the wait list was 18 months for her to wait until she could do IVF. Um, it's a the, the, all six of those units have uh, exceptional success rates. They are at, they are wonderful, uh, well trained. Uh, top-of-the-line equipment, but I'm sad to say that they just are understaffed. They don't have enough uh, resources to accommodate patients in a timely fashion that I think patients in this country are accustomed to. We don't typically like to have people waiting for 
months and months to get a CT scan or to get an antibiotic or to get a doctor's appointment. But to wait 18 months to begin an IVF cycle is not acceptable because obviously our biggest enemy is the biological clock, and right. we can't get that time back. And that's the the uh, that's just the reality is that time is not on your side when we're talking about um, your fertility. Um, that's in particular with women, but for men and women, there are issues. Right. So, for what are the options for a military uh, uh, someone who's in the military? For getting, uh, let's say that they do not have, uh, that they have no reason to believe that their infertility is caused by an injury or illness due to active service. Um, what are their options? Assuming that they, let's, uh, obviously we just mentioned that they could go to one of the six military treatment facilities. And although it would not right. be covered, it is, it is a lower cost. But if they can't get either one, they, they medically they should not wait the, the, the period of time. They're given their age or, or diagnosis, they should not wait. Or they right. just don't live near enough one. What are their options? Are there uh, discounts available? Obviously their option is to go to a civilian clinic, a regular clinic, right. infertility clinic. But is there, is there any type of, of, of cut rates for uh, military personnel at some of these clinics? Absolutely, and almost every clinic that I know of, uh, including mine and my colleagues that, that also operate IVF units in, San, in the San Diego, Los Angeles area, once a IVF patient puts down their uh, military ID, uh, a variety of discounts become uh, uh, within reach for, for that patient. Um, including the uh, cost for gonadotropins. Uh, the medications are very expensive for IVF. For older patients, sometimes the cost of the uh, pharmaceutical, uh, the tab for the medications may be as much as IVF uh, for a mm-hmm. select group of patients. So it's not just about the clinical charge, but it's about the costs, the total, you know, at the door price to do IVF. For some patients, we're talking about a twenty to $30,000 investment uh, so any kind of discount on that would be greatly welcomed. Uh, and I, I know that the point you make is, is very valid. I, most, of the, uh, most of my colleagues would uh, do a lot to try to help bring that within uh, reach for our service members. Uh, and there are, there are, of course, uh, financing arrangements and payment plans to try to lessen that, fi- that fiscal burden. And most clinics... Uh, particularly those around military bases, will be familiar with uh, drug discounts for the because, yes. as you point out, the uh, the infertility drugs uh, make up a substantial portion of the ultimate cost for IVF. And most of the clinics that I know of near military bases will have somebody on staff who can let you know about drug discounts. In addition, you mentioned actual discounts from the IVF that the clinic itself is giving. Um, right. But they will be able to, to let you know right. Now, One ray of hope the, that TRICARE does offer is that the medications, with enough notice, uh, the, patient, the IVF patient can obtain some of their IVF injectable medications through a formulary that is organized through TRICARE at greatly lowered cost compared to if they were to obtain them through a civilian pharmacy. But it takes time. It's all by mail order. Uh, it does take some coordination, but uh, that, that would be also something that uh, the, 
the designated patient liaison at the, each IVF clinic would be able to investigate that uh, option. Excellent. All right, that's very good. Um, I wasn't aware of that, so that's um, that would be an important thing. If you are in the military and you have reason to believe that you sustained an injury that would qualify you to have IVF covered because, because the injury is resulting in your reproductive, uh, your infertility, um, can, can you access IVF at a non-military facility utilizing TRICARE? I think that is a question that is highly center-dependent. Uh, not every IVF clinic will be classified as in-network with TRICARE. Um, so TRICARE does have a provision for uh, TRICARE members to access out-of-network providers with approval and with preauthorization. Um, and, again, that's a case-by-case uh, situation. But it is possible. Yes, we've, we've had that happen here on a number of occasions. Um, and your clinic, however, would need to ago. be in. Well, your, uh, ideally, your clinic, and you would need to check this out at the beginning. But ideally, your clinic would be in network. Is what you're saying, as I understand you. Ideally, from the patient's point of view, that would be correct. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah, from the patient's point of view. All right. So, before we uh, end our our talk today, I want to. I think it's important that we talk about fertility preservation, uh, especially for people who are getting ready to go on active deployment. The, uh, we, you mentioned it, you talked some at the very beginning about uh, Israel, and, and I think there are other countries as well, who do pay for, um, uh, in, in specific, sperm banking, which, let's be honest, right. is significantly less expensive than egg banking. But, um, so, but let's... Uh, should if a let's let's start with men if a man is getting ready to go on active deployment should he consider banking some sperm before he leaves i think so um and i am aware that uh, a brief internet search could identify clinics that might be uh, geographically near such a person that might even uh, waive the fee for uh, mm-hmm. sperm cryobanking for uh, qualified military males. Uh, we're not talking about a large investment. If the Defense Department wanted to do that on a mandatory basis, they would probably be spending less than $500 per uh, interested service member to make that yeah. available as an option. So uh, now your your point is well taken. Uh, for our female service members who wanted to do egg freezing before deployment, obviously the costs, the logistics and the the, the invasive nature of that are very different from a uh, semen analysis and sperm freeze. Um, but I think that, uh, at least among my colleagues, uh, there is a, an acute awareness of a gap in service provision from military medicine on this. And if, if someone contacted uh, a, a thoughtful IVF clinic and said, I'm about to be deployed, uh, would you do a sperm freeze, um, I, I think that they would find it a, a very uh, welcoming conversation and uh, probably a greatly reduced cost linked to that service that they would be seeking. Uh, and then they would always know that they've got that as a backup if they come, if they return and there is some sort of a semen analysis impairment, uh, then they can fall back on serving as their own donor in a way. 
Exactly. Have you heard, and, and I, I don't know, uh, I have not, so, uh, but have you heard of, uh, uh, from a, uh egg freezing standpoint, uh, uh, female personnel getting a reduced rate? Because, as, as we've both mentioned, it is more expensive, and it's also, we have to acknowledge, also more invasive on the woman's body. Um, but uh, uh, speaking just of, of uh, financial costs, have you heard of, of facilities uh, giving discounts for women who are getting ready to be actively deployed? I believe so. Um, but in terms of the awareness of that service, and this is why I'm really glad that that this that, that your program exists and that we're talking about this specific topic, it's really all about being uh, aware uh, mm-hmm. and having an educated uh, uh, medical consumer base uh, if even if a, a discrete program does not exist, I think that a well-placed phone call to a reproductive endocrinologist from a female service member that's about to be deployed, um, that they would, they would find it to be a very welcoming discussion. Uh, and uh, they, they might say, well, can you give me a 50% discount? Or what, what kind of percent discount can be negotiated? Uh, I mean, these are people that are that are doing a job that, that – that is so important uh, to our our, our national uh, uh, being that exactly. I, I, I'm just it would be unthinkable to you know make it difficult for those people to gain access to something because of an oversight at the federal level that they've carved out this. I mean, talk about the ultimate donut hole. You punched out IVF and no egg freezing, and here these folks could be sacrificing their future reproductive potential. Um, to, to defend all of us that stay behind in the civilian sphere, mm-hmm. um, I, I just I think it would be uh, uh, very easy for uh, those kinds of folks to to, to get what they wanted, um, and, and I think it's really it's heartwarming because you see stories about people that go up to uh, our our active duty service people, whether at a shopping mall or at a restaurant, and go up and thank them for their service. I, I feel like that in, a, in the world of fertility professionals, that ethos is very much alive and well also. Uh, we just, we just uh, don't have a way to express it any other way than mm-hmm. to help those folks gain access to treatment that might be uh, financially prohibitive otherwise. And it goes back to something we said at the very beginning. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. So exactly. you, you stand you stand in on that very... So true. Yes. If that's on that cynical note, I think we can end. Let me remind people that keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Uh, For those who would like to get more information on Dr. Sills, you can go to his clinic's website. And remember, the clinic name is Center for Advanced Genetics, and they are in Carlsbad, California. And the website is... C-A-G-I-V-F, that's Center for Advanced Genetics. That's what it stands for, at IVF.com. The book that we have been referring to is Fighting at the Fertility Front, a Navigational Guide to Infertility for U.S. Military, Veterans, and Their Partners. Uh, I'm sure that you could ask any of your independent bookstores to order it, but it is also available on Amazon, and you can pop over there if you are a... uh, online purchaser, um, or if you read it on your uh, Kindle or other uh, type of, of uh, uh, mobile device, you can, um, you can get it that way as well. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Phils, for being on our show today. This is an important well, topic and one that I'm glad you were here to help us talk about. Thank you, everyone, and I will see you next week.